continue our study through the book of 1 John. As was already read, our text this morning, 1 John chapter number 5. And our focus this morning is going to be on the, the latter two verses of uh, that context. We've looked already at the first three verses and um, unpacked or, or discovered the fact that there are certain characteristics um, principles or, or lifestyles that are associated with those who are true believers. And we, we, we want to be mindful that the book of 1 John is written to bring distinction to those who are true followers of Jesus Christ and those who are perhaps professing followers of Jesus Christ but are, are not uh, truly saved. And, uh, and the reason for that is, is twofold. Number one, to encourage believers because it can be very discouraging uh, to believe in Christ, and then to see a whole nother group of people who claim to be Christians but are living a very worldly, wicked lifestyle, and to try to make the distinction. So John makes that distinction for us. And then secondarily, um, is if somebody is not a believer and they believe that they are, they've come to perhaps be a false convert, that they could come to realize that and, and uh, then fall before the Lord, repent of their sins, and, and find salvation in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. This morning, our focus is going to be on the last two verses of this text that was read, verses 4 and 5, and our main theme is going to be on the um, on overcoming, being victorious. If, you, if I were to title my sermon, if you have a bulletin, it's called Marked by Overcoming. And um, Overcoming is not something that, or, or, or winning, a few other terms that we could use, um, it's not something that's just central to this text, but it's central to the entire philosophy of Scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you see those who are followers of Jesus Christ constantly overcoming. And you, could, you, would, you would be able to say that they are overcomers. Christians are overcomers. As a Christian, winning is not something that's optional, but it's something that's guaranteed, and it's something that ultimately identifies those who are true believers. Paul said it this way in Galatians 6 and verse 17, he said, and now, from now on, let no one trouble me. In other words, stop challenging my salvation, stop challenging my Christianity, stop questioning who I am because I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is there are, there are things about my lifestyle, there are marks that I have on my life that are uh, identification marks that should cause us to stop questioning whether or not Paul was a true follower of Jesus Christ. And we can all look at Paul's life and we can say amen to that statement. We can all say there, there's very little question as to whether or not Paul was a true follower of Jesus Christ. The question this morning is not, was Paul a follower of Jesus Christ? The question is, are our lives, is your life, is my life, would it be as definitive of a Christian life as Paul's was? Would people be able to say, or would you be able to say, stop questioning my salvation, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ? And the main mark that we see in our text here is the mark of being an overcomer, being somebody who overcomes obstacles. The implication of the text is, is that an obstacle has been placed in front of us, and we've all faced obstacles, 
Um, We all have obstacles that we face every day, every week, especially to our Christian faith and our, our walk with the Lord. We have obstacles that have been placed in front of us, and we have found a way to overcome those obstacles. A few other terms to describe an obstacle would be like a hurdle. If you've ever run track, you know that there are hurdles every so often, and the, the track competitor runs a certain number of feet, then he jumps over a hurdle, right? And he runs a certain number of feet, he jumps over another hurdle. And those hurdles are, are placed in his way as, a, as a, a way to stop him. As a matter of fact, if you've watched any track and field sports, what you'll see is sometimes there'll be guys and they'll run really, really fast and they'll come to that first hurdle and it will knock them on the ground, right? And they fall on the ground and some of them are able to get back up again and they're able to keep on going, but others, they, they stay on the ground because, because they've been injured and are incapable of going any further, The purpose of those hurdles is to stop them from progressing, to stop them from going forward, and then to cause the other athletes who are excelling athletes to be able to beat those who are not excelling. So an idea of an obstacle being placed in front of us and us overcoming is the idea of a hurdle. And what we would call the hurdles in the Christian life is we would call them difficulties, hindrances, complications, impediments are things that are placed in our way, barriers or blockades, things that have been placed in front of us by the devil to keep us from moving forward. We want to always be mindful of this, though. With, with, every, with every obstacle that's put in front of us by the devil, the Lord is sovereign over that obstacle. You see, at the same time that the obstacle keeps some people from moving forward, from passing go, it makes other people better athletes, doesn't it? It causes other people to jump higher and to run faster and to, and to get better. So the obstacles that are placed in front of us by the devil, meant for evil, are actually meant for good by the Lord. And they're going to make us excel as Christians They're not going to make us better athletes, but they're going to make us better Christians. They're going to make us better believers, better people of faith. So these obstacles are not always, or let me say it this way, these obstacles always have two motivations to them. One motivation is an evil motivation to bring destruction, to limit, to keep from moving forward. The other motivation is to make us stronger in the Lord and to cause us to be able to next time jump over the next hurdle and the next hurdle and to get, to get better at jumping over those hurdles. Hebrews 12 and verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which does hinder us or cling so closely or beset us. A sin and weights that beset us. Let, us. let us lay these things aside and then we can run with patience the race that is set before us. It's like an athlete before a track meet. You have, you, maybe you run and you train with leg weights on and you run as fast as you can with those leg weights on. But when it, when it comes time for the race and you're standing there against all your competitors, you're to take those leg weights off and place them aside so that you can run faster than you've ever run before. And so it is with the Christian life. There are weights, there are things that that get in our way, obstacles that get in our way, and there are weights and there are sins, and these things are meant to hinder us, but 
if used rightly, they're going to ultimately strengthen us and prepare us for the battle. Matthew says in Matthew 16 and verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've always found it interesting that, the, that gates are not something that, gates are meant to keep something out, aren't they? And so the, the gates of hell have been set up to be an, an obstacle, to be a hindrance from the church of Jesus Christ. But the gates of hell cannot hinder the church of Jesus Christ as powerful and significant in the faith as it is. The only way that the church can be hindered by the gates of hell is if, like Satan desired to have Peter, that he might sift him as wheat. If the devil can destroy our faith and can keep us from moving forward, it's like we as Christians, we walk up to the gates and we're like, ah, I don't really want to try to pass through that. There might be some difficulty there. And so we stay outside. The only way that the gates of hell can keep the church from accomplishing its purpose is to keep us from pressing on in faith. According to the scriptures, the true church will not be hindered by the gates that have been set up to defeat it or keep it from moving forward. The word overcome here in our text comes from the, the Greek word nikau, and it means to be victorious or to overcome. There are many men in the Bible that are marked by this overcoming. I think of Joseph in Genesis who overcome, overcame lies and injustices. David overcame Goliath. Daniel overcame the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego overcame the fiery furnace. Samson overcame the Philistines. Paul and Silas overcame prison. Jesus overcame sin, death, and destruction. One of the things that you'll find consistently throughout Scripture is those who were followers of Christ were marked by victory. They were marked by overcoming. Do you think if David would have lost to Goliath, he would have been written about in the Bible? Do you think that there weren't other people who faced Goliath and died that weren't written about in the Bible? Do you think that there were other Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's that went into the fiery furnace and were burnt up and are not written about in the Bible? Do you think that there are other Daniels who went into the lion's den? He wasn't the only one that went into the lion's den. He's the only one that came out of the lion's den. You see, that's what marks us. It's not that we face trials. It's not that we face tribulation because everybody faces trials and tribulations. 2018 is going to be full of trials and tribulations for every single one of us. It's not that we face these things that identifies us as a follower of Jesus. It's that we overcome these things. It's that we make it through and we're not weakened by them, but we're strengthened by those, by those hurdles and by those obstacles. We're made stronger in the faith, not weaker in the faith. This is what marks us. Turn with me in your, in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation the second and third chapter. Because of time, I'm not going to get into all of the exposition here of this term, but in, in the book of 1 John, it's used five times, the idea of overcoming. And in the book of Revelation, it's used 15 times, the idea of overcoming. And I, I want to just look at, at, at a few of these times. In chapters 2 and 3, there are Seven letters written by the Lord to seven churches. At the end of each one of those letters, there's these words. Chapter 2 and verse 7 says, He who hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who overcomes. 
the one who conquers, the one who, who, who wins, the one who makes it, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And you go down to verse number 11. He who hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. Verse 17, the Bible says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who has received it. And in each one of these seven churches, it says every time, he who overcomes, he who overcomes. And if you study out these seven things, every one of these things is, is, is descriptive of somebody who is a believer. Listen, if, if you don't get the white stone, if you don't eat of the manas of heaven, if you don't eat from the tree of life, it's not saying that you're just not going to get to eat from the tree of life. It's saying that you're lost. He who overcomes is the one who gets to eat from the tree of life. He who overcomes is the one who gets the white stone. He who overcomes is the one who gets the new name. All of these seven, at the end of these seven churches, what the Lord is saying is this. If you win, you will enter into my kingdom. If you overcome, if you're victorious, you will enter in. If you go to the end of the book, the end of the book, book, chapter 21, one chapter away from the close, Verse 7, the Bible says, For one who conquers, one who, the same Greek word, the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and, and the faithless and the detestables and the murderers and the sexually immoral sorcerers, uh, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone or sulfur, which is the second death. Overcoming is what marks us. It identifies us. It, it sets us apart as being followers of Jesus Christ. We win as Christians. Jesus Christ won. He defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan. He defeated everything evil. And now he claims to live inside of us. And he claims to say to us and promises us that we have that same victory, right? What does he say in 1 John verse 4 and verse 4? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Go back with me to our text. We're going to answer some questions this morning from our text about this idea of overcoming, being marked by victory, being marked by overcoming. Listen, there is nothing too big for our God. Jesus doesn't say it one time, but he says it over and over again. Things that are impossible with men are possible with God. When we look at our lives, we look at our circumstances, we look at our difficulties, we look at our problems, and we often step back and say, I'm just going to quit. But that's not the heart of a believer. A believer doesn't say, I'm just going to quit. A believer says, I'm just going to go forward. 
I'm just going to do what's right. Yes, there's a hurdle in my way. Yes, there's an obstacle in, obstacle in my way, but that will not stop me from doing what is right. And I will not overcome that obstacle in my own strength, but I will overcome it by the power of God in me. I mean, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's about running up on obstacles and stopping and saying, I can't do that. That's too big for me. And then taking five steps back and running as fast as you can and as hard as you can and leaping as high as you can. And in the power of God, we win. Not in our own strength. And we know that we can't do it alone, but we know that he can do it in us and he can do it through us. And there's no problem too big and there's no person too difficult that we can't win through Christ. That is really, folks, that is the gospel. That is the gospel that he was able to win with us and we're able to win with him. So I want to give you these things this morning, these challenges, thoughts, questions with answers, hopefully. Number one is why do believers overcome? Why do believers overcome? Why do we jump those hurdles? Why does it even matter? Why can't we just not? That's right. There we go. Point number one, because we have a purpose. We have a reason to jump these hurdles. We have a reason to get over these obstacles. Let me say this to you. The same reason that you have an obstacle is the same reason that you get past it. Does that make sense? There is no reason for obstacles if you don't have a purpose. You see, the devil doesn't put obstacles in front of people who have no purpose. The devil puts obstacles in front of people that have a purpose. So the very reason that you have an obstacle, and and may I submit to you this, the very reason why you have some big obstacles is because you have a, because you have a big purpose. You see, the smaller your purpose, the smaller your obstacles The devil doesn't have to throw very much at somebody who doesn't have a big purpose. But if you have a big purpose like Job did, like Jesus did, if you had a big purpose like those guys did, you get big obstacles. Why do we have to, or why do we overcome? Because we have a purpose. We have a goal. We have something that we're pursuing I know for most of us, we think, you know what? When I was five years old, I said this prayer. I, I, I nailed it down. It's all done. I have nothing I'm pursuing. It's already all done. Do you know what Paul says to that? In the book of Philippians, Paul says this. Paul was one of the greatest. He wrote half of the New Testament, right? In regards to this, he said, I have not attained. I had not arrived. I continue to press on to take hold of the thing for which Christ took hold of me. In other words, when Christ took hold of you and saved you and made you his own, he did it for a reason. And Paul said, I'm going to pursue God's reason for me until the day I die. I'm going to run after why God saved me, why God chose me, why God ripped me from the, from the chains of sin and set me free. I'm going to pursue that with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to make it. And I'm not going to make it in my power, but I'm going to make it in his power. We have a purpose. Because we have a purpose, we pursue with all of our strength. 
1 Corinthians 16, 9 says, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, Paul says. A wide door for effective work has been opened to me, but there are many adversaries. James 1, 2 says, count it all joy, my brother, when you, when you face, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you fall into various forms of temptation, count it all joy when you face difficulty. Count it all. I mean, this, these, this, this phrase and these terms is foreign to us, isn't it? It is alien to us. Count it all joy when you face hurdles in life. Count it all joy when you face difficulties in life. Count it all joy when you face heartache in life, right? We read on because that heartache and that trial and that difficulty is going to work out patience and it's going to work out perseverance. It's going to work out sanctification. But not only that, but verse 12 says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in trial. Blessed is the man, the King James says, who overcomes temptation. For he... For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God hath promised to those who love him. We have a goal. We're pursuing something with all of our strength. What are we pursuing? The ultimate pursuit of a Christian is eternal life. The ultimate pursuit of a, for a Christian is eternal life. Twofold to live confident. Remember this. I, I don't believe that our pursuit is what brings about eternal life, but I believe that our pursuit brings about confidence in our eternal life. Amen. To live confident that we have the life of Christ in us. To live confident that Christ's life, eternal life, his life is in me. Paul says, I, I Galatians 2 and verse 20 um, can't quote it right now. Somebody else could quote it for me. Throw it out there. What's that? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is the pursuit of confidence in what Christ has done for us. And not only that, but it is the pursuit of the manifestation of of what Christ has done for us. It is the pursuit of living out what Christ has done for us. Romans 5 and verse 20 and 21 says this, Now the law came so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ my Lord. And then Philippians 3, I quoted it to you, uh, some of it a moment ago, but I want to read a, a portion of it. Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is um, that comes by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God, from God that depends on faith, that I might know him, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and I might share in his suffering, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it, to make it my own because Christ, Christ Jesus has made me his own. What a, what a powerful passage of Scripture. We pursue a goal. There's a prize in mind, and it is Christ in us, the confidence of Christ in us, and it is Christ through us that we might manifest to others what Christ Jesus has done for us. Listen this morning, folks, your greatest witness to those around you is what Christ Jesus has delivered you from. You say, well, Pastor John, Christ Jesus hasn't really delivered me from anything. You need to stop and rewind and check up. There's not a single person that is a child of God that doesn't have an amazing testimony. Not one. It might be that we don't know our testimony as well as we ought, but there's not one person that's a child of God that doesn't have an amazing testimony. It is Christ in us. It is Christ through us. Number two, where do believers overcome? What's the battlefield? Back in our text, this is very important to remember. The Bible says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever, whoever has been born of him. By this we, we love the children of God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Where is our battle? In other words, what's the, what's the battleground? Where's the war? Where is the war being raged right now that we need to win over? What is, where is the wage being war that we need to win over? Just a few things. Number one, it is a spiritual warfare. You guys have heard very well taught through the book of Ephesians. Before I got here with Ron, you understand that the battle that we face is a spiritual battle. It's not a battle of flesh and blood, but it is a spiritual warfare. That means that there are demonic forces and there are angelic forces right now that are at war with each other, and they are fighting for you, and they're fighting for me. If you don't acknowledge that, if you don't accept that, you'll not join the war. You'll just fall prey to the enemy and give in to it. You need to understand this, that there's a war right now for you and for me. It is a spiritual war. It's something that you cannot see. It's something that you cannot understand. It's a spiritual warfare, but you must know that it is there. Ephesians 6 and verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Number two, it is a war for your mind. The battle is for your mind. The battle is for my mind. That's the field that the battle is being waged on today. The battle is for your mind. It is for my mind. The devil wants our minds. Here's why the devil wants our minds, and this is number three. 
One of the things that you'll see centralized in this passage of five verses is the word love. The devil is after your affections. The devil is after your affections. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter number six that no one can serve two masters. He will, he will love, right? He will love one and he will hate the other one. So in other words, there's this work going on. There's these, there's these, there's these forces, if you will, demonic forces and heavenly forces, and they're at war for our affections. And once they have our affections, then they have us. And they can guide us and direct us wherever they want us to go because they have our love. They have our affections. And remember this, you cannot have affections for the world and have affections for God. You can have a a false sense of affections for the world and a false sense of affections for God, but you cannot have true affections for both. This is a lie of the devil that has infiltrated our culture today big time. We cannot have affections for the world and affections for the Lord. They are opposing affections. Okay? It would be like saying, I'm in love with my wife, but I'm also in love with somebody who's trying to kill her. Does that make any sense at all? Okay? That's exactly the same thing. The world is doing everything it can to undermine and destroy the things of God. You cannot be in love with both. So the war is for your affections. It's for your love. The the world wants you to fall in love with it, and the Lord wants you to fall in love with him. And you can't, we cannot have both. Colossians 3 and verse 3, the Bible says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. And 1 Peter 1.14 says, An obedient child, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The battle is for your affections. The world wants you to fall in love with it. The Lord wants you to fall in love with him, and you can't fall in love with both. They They oppose each other. And that's where the battleground is. That's where the war is right now. It's in your mind. It's for what you love, what you like, what you're committed to, what you give your life to, what you give your time to, what you give your money to. It's all in pursuit of those things. It's all in pursuit of those things. Listen, folks, I'm, I'm going to be straightforward with you, okay? So if you don't like it, then come and talk to me later. We'll work through it together, okay? But listen, the, the world is after our time. The world, the world is after our commitments, the world is after our money. I got to, this is on Sunday, and, and, and I got to go to church. No! Oh, that's on Sunday? Well, you know what? We could go to church. I'm, I'm just simply, I'm not, I know there's, there, there are things that we miss church for, and I know there, some of them are legitimate, but here's what I'm saying, folks, is our heart should be, I want to be in God's house. Our affections, our desires, our kids should say, man, it's not that we have to go to church on Sunday, but our kids should say, they shouldn't even come to us and say, Dad, hey, listen, there's a fishing thing that I can go to on Sunday. They should be like, Dad's going to just say no because we get to be in church. Can I submit to you, folks, that your kids learn what you love by your commitments? They do. And they will love what you love. We're not in a, listen, we're not far from where Europe was 
when their churches were on the verge of having nobody there. We're not far from it. And we got to get our hearts back in the right. It's not about getting our actions back in the right place. It's about getting our hearts back in the right place. It's about waking up on Sunday morning with some excitement for God. We get to come. We get to serve. We get to sing. We get to hear Pastor John scream. (laughs) We get to do these things. We get to open up the very word of God, his very word. We get to open it up and we get to hear it. We need to get back to that moment in our lives. We need to get back to that place as Christians. Listen, our culture is not going to turn around on its own. We've got to be the source of that change. The battle is for your mind. There's a war to steal your affections and to take them away from the things of God and to place them on the things of this world. We must war against that. That's where the battlefield is, number two. Where, is, where do believers overcome? Number three, who do believers overcome? Who do believers overcome? Temptation is the mechanism used to lure us away from what's important. Remember that. Temptation is the mechanism used to lure us away from what's important. And the world, number two, is the source of that temptation. The world is the source of the temptation that is luring us away from affections for Christ to affections for anything else. Anything else. It's amazing that the, the, your, your affections can be totally different from this guy's affections, but as long as they're not affections for the Lord. The world is the source of this temptation. 1 John 2, verse 15 and 7 through 17. Same book, same author. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, what's the battle? Do not love the world. Do not love the things of the world. Battle is for our affections, and the tool is temptation. It is temptation. He is throwing temptations at you guys and you ladies every single day. Why? To draw your affections away from the Lord. That's what his goal is. We can know his goal. We can, we can, we can possibly win. He says in... Uh, Chapter, 15, uh, chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, he tells us what this is, and I'm just going to give you a, a, a brief overview. Remember this. Eve faced the same temptation that Jesus faced that we face. Eve faced the same temptation that Jesus faced that we face. They're all three the same, and they are threefold. Number one, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Jesus, at the end of his 40 days of fasting, he was what? He was tempted with hunger, right? Jesus was hungry. He was tempted 
with hunger. Eve, when she looked at the fruit in the garden, she saw that it was good for food, fleshly desires, things that our flesh needs can become idols. They can become interferences in the realm of loving and following after the Lord. Did you know one of the themes of the Old Testament, one of the themes, one of the things that you see constantly in the Old Testament, and you see it some in the New Testament, is the idea of fasting. Do you know why people fasted? They fasted so that they could have full affections for the Lord. Something that we physically need for life, a focus on gratifying our physical needs that our body has. That's the lust of the flesh. It can be sexual. It can be food. It can be drink. It can be anything that your body desires, that even your body needs, can become an interference with your affections for the Lord. You can have more affections for those things than you do for the Lord. And, and, and it's easy to see. We, we see it every single day of our lives. How many of us miss on a regular basis? And, and don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand at all. Just listen to the question. How many of us miss breakfast? Okay. How many of us miss lunch? How many, how many of us miss supper? We could probably all say that we maybe miss one of those meals a day, but, but very few of us could say that we miss all of those meals in a day, right? How many of you this week did not read your Bible one day? Do you see what I'm saying? Probably most of us would say, I did not read my Bible one day this week. But we would not give the same, we would not give the same freedom to the food that we put into our stomachs. We would not say, oh, I forgot to eat today, right? But we do it with God. What's wrong? It's the lust of the flesh. We're putting something ahead of God. And what's the first commandment? Have no other gods before me or besides me. The lust of the eyes are the things that we see. Jesus said in the garden, and when he saw, the devil said to Jesus, he said, he said to Jesus in Luke 4, he said, picture, he said this, and I want you to close your eyes for a moment and picture this. He says to Jesus, close your eyes, Jesus. I want you to picture all of the worlds bowing down to you. Picture, Jesus, picture all of the world bowing down to you. Don't you want that? You know what Jesus said? No. Matter of fact, he says, you're not the one that's able to give it. What we see, Eve said it's desirable for the eyes. This is where lust comes in. The devil throws a lot of lustful things in front of us, doesn't he? You remember this when you're thinking about lusting. You are deciding between passion for Jesus or a passion for somebody that you should not have a passion for. There's no small thing. Then pride of life. He told Jesus, hey, jump off this, jump off this high place and God will save you. And Eve said this was good for her to be wise. It's the pride of life. It's the temptation to be great is what the devil will use to interfere with your commitment to God. Listen, 
in every one of these three temptations, you know who's central? You are. You're in love with you. You're in love with you if your flesh and your eyes and your pride are the central focus of your life. And Jesus says, I want you to be in love with me, not in love with you. Who do we overcome? We overcome the world and all that is within it. The last thing this morning is, what is the source of our victory? And he says it very, very plainly. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. I don't have time to unpack what that means, but it simply means everything that Christ is for you is how you overcome the world. Listen, when the world throws counterfeit pleasures in front of you, cling to the real pleasure, right? Focus on what Jesus has done for you. When these fake things start coming into your life that the devil's throwing at you, focus on the real thing. Focus on what really matters. Let your affections and let your attention be drawn to what God has done for you and what God has done in you and what God has done through you and stop and say, God, I'm so thankful for what you have done, so thankful that I turned my back on the filthy offer of the devil. That's what he's doing. He is making counterfeit offers like he did with Eve and he tried to do with Jesus and he does with you every day. He is making counterfeit offers so that you will chase after something that is not real at the cost of something that is real. I guarantee you men who have extramural relationships don't realize the cost of what they're doing. Satan has deceived them into chasing something that is temporary and worthless at the cost of something that is eternal and valuable. And that's just one illustration. There are thousands of others. We're throwing away what is real so that we can have what is fake. And this is the lie of the devil. And he grabs a hold of your affections and you live your life for money and you live your life for sex and we live our lives for pleasure and we live our lives for everything except God. What is our faith? It is embracing all that Christ is for us. It is, it is inviting all that Christ is for us into our life and our world. It is being thankful for all that Christ is for us. Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11 says, and I heard a great voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accused them day and night before God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Listen, folks, we're winners. Amen? We're winners. Don't let the devil tell you you're a loser. Don't let the devil tell you you can't get over that hurdle. Don't let the devil tell you it's impossible. There is nothing impossible with God. Tell you what, when the devil comes at you with those false attacks, you just point him to Jesus and you say, you know what? If it's impossible for Jesus, it's impossible for me, but nothing's impossible for Jesus. When you point him to Jesus, he has nothing to say. 
But when you point to yourself, he has everything to say. Remember this. The obstacles that are placed in front of you are meant to destroy you by the devil and they're meant to mature you by the Lord. All of Joseph's struggles in Genesis, and he says at the end, brothers, what you meant against me as evil, God meant as good. And you get over that hurdle, and you're ready to face the next hurdle. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day and the privilege we have to be here in your house, the grace that you have bestowed upon us, the blessings that we receive from your hand, and we pray that you will just guide our hearts and um, get a hold of us again, Lord. Grab our passions and our pursuits and point them towards you that we would no longer love the things of this world and no longer pursue the things of this world and no longer give our time and energy and passions to the things of this world, but God, to, to embrace again that which, that which really matters. Pray that you would just be with us, guide us and direct us to that victory that only you can give. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name.